If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's April 23rd, 2017. Hello and welcome to Working for a Living radio show, where progressives for change present opinions that matter. I'm your moderator, Leroy McKnight, on behalf of co-hosts Jeffrey Brown and David Fillion. Please remember, good leadership is never about power and control, but rather for the honor and privilege of serving the members in the interest of the membership. Having said that, we certainly hope Everyone enjoyed the Easter and Passover holiday season and that you stayed stayed safe. Now, please enjoy this highly requested legacy segment. On July 31st, 2016, we covered a topic about NAFTA and GATT. I'm going to recap that as we go along the show this evening. December 8, 1993, NAFTA was signed into law by President Clinton. And December 8, 1994, a little-known companion law by the name of GATT, G-A-T-T, Global Agreement on tax and tariff was signed into law. That's an older law that was revamped It's a, in, since the 1940s. was revamped uh, and we are at a great disadvantage for all time never to be revisited or have it sunsetted. We now exist under that same law without change. We'll get into that GATT a little further in the show this evening. Let's start with NAFTA. As you know, everybody is aware of NAFTA, and it really hasn't been all that good. When NAFTA came into being, it paired North America together. Canada a tier one country, the United States, a tier one country, and Mexico, a third tier country, making very nominal wages to the point that the residents of Mexico to this day try and cross the border to a better life. Canada and the United States have really been hurt by this because as Ross Perot said in the presidential campaign debate held here at Michigan State University campus in East Lansing, Michigan Ross Perot said if you pass NAFTA you will hear a huge sucking sound of money and jobs 
leaving the United States. Implicit in that was Canada. Of course, we've seen that. When all of this was being negotiated and shortly after it was placed into law and on and through today, I have made the case personally that there should have been some sort of sliding scale when you pair up a third tier country with two first tier countries. That's uh, to be described as uh, 30 cent an hour wages in Mexico when this began and in 92 approximately 15 to 16 dollars an hour at that time. So it was a huge disadvantage uh, 30 that's 45 times less uh, I did the, the math 30 into 15 we'll call it uh, is around 45 times less for the wages in Mexico than they are in the United States and Canada the thought was at that time by myself and a few others put a sliding scale in for Mexico and input the highest minimum wage in the United States and charge the difference between the wages that were built on a, in a product that were used, paid in the uh, building of a process, of a product. Uh, those wages, uh, difference between the, those and the highest minimum wage in the country would be inputted at the border as a surcharge so that they those products couldn't be dumped on our economy in the other two countries the United States and Canada without having at least a nominal amount of wages inputted into the products that come across the borders that stops that dumping stops the exodus of jobs and money now what do you do with the surcharge well, you give it back to Mexico so they can build their infrastructure and those things that support the economy and to slowly increase the wages over time, maybe a 10% per year. So after 10 years, and it's been, what, 24 years now, uh, after 10 years or so, you actually have an economy that's then healthy and the surcharge could go away. But you would give the money of the surcharge back to Mexico so they can support themselves, increase the wages, put roads and services, electric, power, any uh, need for uh, uh, natural gas, any such thing, water, sewer systems, all of those things would then be provided for out of the surcharge that was charged at the border. Now, of course, there was a lot of corruption to be dealt with, but you deal with it. 
you put task force in place. You simply say, you we're, going to, we're going to monitor that you do this with this money. So that was the answer and remains the answer because it's still a very imbalanced situation between Canada, United States, and Mexico. Let's take it to today. What should we do today about NAFTA? Well, NAFTA exists with about $2.50 wages. And of course, the wages in the United States and Canada have been suppressed. So the difference between the wages in Mexico, two fifty under NAFTA, and we'll say $30 for Tier 1 workers in the United States and Mexico. And I think it was David Fillion said that that's around uh, 15 times difference. And you see it was 45 roughly in 1993. And here today it's around 15. So you can see the suppression of wages in the United States and Canada. And that's another subject that we really, as a caucus, choose to try and take on at some point. So we have fifteen dollars or thirty dollars and two fifty, about fifteen percent or uh, uh, fifteen times difference. Again, you take the highest minimum wage in the United States, California and New York have $15 minimum wage. You plug in the $15 minimum wage and put a surcharge and that's the only thing that's legal. We'll get into that in a minute. And that, that's a result of GATT. Put a surcharge of $12.50 on every product, a labor surcharge for every hour of labor that a product has been used to manufacture that's at 250 you put a surcharge of $12.50 bringing it up to the $15 level on every product and then give that money right back to Mexico you can't keep it and we'll get into that again we'll get into that in a second you can't keep it you give it back to Mexico they can build their roads do all the infrastructure Maybe even have a couple of social programs where people that are, you know, destitute might have a, a, a net underneath them. But we don't, you know, want to we don't want to dictate what they use the money for, other than, you know, build your economy, build your economy, and as those wages then start to grow and get closer to the highest minimum wage, that surcharge then gets less and less from 12.50 to 11 to 9, on down to where it, you know, they're pretty much up to at least our minimum wage level. And now you're not dumping product here all that much. That's what needs to happen with NAFTA. It just simply needs to occur, and it needed to occur in 1993 some 24 years ago and it didn't over the objections of a number of people including myself
Okay, that's NAFTA, and we all know this this long uh, sorted stories about NAFTA. You know, we early on we had the Machiadoras and the things that were going on in Machiadoras and the water being polluted, and they didn't have an EPA. And of course, now we're talking about doing away with the EPA here. There's a bill in Congress since the first of the year that. Uh, targeted to eliminate the EPA by December of 2018, right after the next cycle of election, interestingly enough. Uh, (laughs) uh, You've heard me talk about some of the other legislation recently signed, and now these are proposed things. Of course, the Education Department, they want to do away with that too. We'll see. I was reminded that uh, uh, Reagan tried to do that as well. It didn't work. And Nixon tried to do it as well. It didn't work. Uh, Having said that, uh, let's get on to the next element of law that was passed in December 8, 1994, signed by President Clinton, called GATT, Global Agreements on Tax and Tariff. As it turns out, at a 1982 summit in Mexico City, just by serendipity it happened to be in Mexico City, where a lot of folk went to determine how globalization would occur. And these were names like Jack Welch, Alan Greenspan, I believe Larry Kudlow has represented that he was there at one point. Uh, At one point, he he was there, and at one point he represented that he actually was there. Um, Some of these types of people. And what came out of that summit was that the United States, the country doing the very best on the globe, needed to start uh, exporting some of its uh, goodwill, uh, its prosperity to the rest of the world. And unbeknownst to most everyone in the United States, and we didn't even see it coming, or to to this day don't know what occurred because nothing changed in our country. We just continued to go down the happy little trail. But what changed around us is that from this meeting, in whole or in part, every other country in the world and all emerging countries that had gone bankrupt and reemerged, like Chile and some others, went to a payroll withholding tax, sales tax. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. We are on a payroll withholding tax. I'm, I apologize. We're on a payroll withholding tax. They went to a sales tax. And they call that a VAT tax, V-A-T, value-added tax. In some of the invoices that you purchase on online or around the world, you'll see a VAT element in the, the uh, 
invoice. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it's vacant. Um, and uh, I, well, let's, so, th so that's, that's kind of how that went. They, they went in whole or in part to a value added tax and we were on a payroll withholding tax. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means to us because I did a study. I became aware of this in about 1989, a while ago. And I did a study on this, and there's a number of things that I've come up with. First of all, I studied all seven G7, all seven of the G7 countries and their uh, tax structure. The cleanest one, uh, I, I don't want to get into names because some of these numbers have changed a little bit, uh, but the one country that comes to mind that's most been uh, taken advantage of this and is doing the very best of all of the countries in the world without saying their name. It's a European country, by the way. And if you really think about it, you would put that together. But they had a 17% uh, value-added tax, a sales tax. Now, a value-added tax is progressive through the, per the, the uh, production of any unit. But they get some waivers if they've paid the tax previously. So it, do, it doesn't really compound. It only moves, moves up the structure, so it's not compounding. So in the end, you're paying the tax on only the end item product. And here in the United States, now they have the 17%, and that's pretty clear. And they had very little to no payroll withholding. Only above the $50,000 mark did they have a payroll withholding, and then it was nominal. It was very 3 to 4% uh, nominal on the higher levels of income, payroll withholding. Now, we stayed with the, pay, the, uh, the they had, I'm sorry, <laughs> they had, uh, yes, I did, I did say it right, 17% up to 50000 and then an additional 3 to 4% of payroll withholding. So you understand that. So little payroll payroll withholding. Most people were on just a simple sales tax. We, on the other hand, had the 32% payroll withholding tax for all of our people. Now, I know this is getting a little uh, detailed, but you really got to stay with me on this because it's very important stuff. And it is, in fact, what has happened to our country over time. So, this all changed in 82. Comes to my attention in 89. I do a comparative study of global economic taxes on at least the top seven countries, and I came up with some horrible results. What that meant to us, let's say there's a $10,000 product, and that product is the same to build labor, materials, and super burden. Now, I'm going to explain those. Everybody knows what labors are. labor is. Everybody knows what materials are. Materials, let's say copper, is about the same global. Uh, steel is about the same global. I mean, it, they do what's called an arbitrage uh, globally. So if one's out of balance, they sell that one and buy the other one and brings them in balance pretty quickly. So they're not too far out of balance 
roughly the same price for materials globally. And then super burden is the cost of running the facility, your heat lights, the cost of the building, maintenance on the building, that sort of thing. That's super burden. So that's the costs that go into a product. Okay, and we're going to say that that's a $10,000 product. $10,000, and then you put tax on it or not. That's your knots where it comes in here. And we tax ours built into the price of the car because we pay the people and take it from their wages and give it to the government. So you can't remove it from the cost of the product. 32%, that makes the cost of the product $13,200. Okay, $10,000 to build it, taxes are thirteen two. that makes the vehicle or the, the product a $13,200 product. Let's send it over to the, the country X that I was talking about, and they put a 17% value-added tax, a sales tax on it. That takes you up to 14,000, or yeah, 14,900, uh, 14,900, 14,900 if you buy our product in their country. They build the same product at $10,000. They don't have payroll withholding, so the, the only item is just the 10000 And if they sell it in their country, X country, that then is 11.7. 17% makes the, the product 11.7. So the 11.7 versus 14.9 for our product. Okay. Now, here comes the rub. They build their product in X country, and they ship it to the United States. Now, was it sold in their country? No. So it comes over with no sales tax on it, because it wasn't sold, was it? And that's the cost of government, 17%. Comes over here to the United States with zero cost of government, and it's being sold here in the United States for $10,000. Now let me recap. It costs $10,000 globally to build the product. We put 32% on our product, can't be removed. They put 17% on their product in X country, and it's only put on the product if it's sold. Big difference. Ours goes over there at X country, 14.9, 4, 4, 4, 4,000, yes, it'd be uh, 32 and, and 17, it's nine, uh, 49. So that's 10,000 plus 4,000, 49%, rather. So it'd be $14,900. Okay, their product is 11.7 in their country. When it ships over here, it's $10,000. They can sell their product here in the United States for 32% less 
then we can sell our own product here. That's where I started questioning the whole process. Why can you buy a foreign product 32% cheaper than you can buy an American product? And I kept asking that question. And I kept getting this answer. It's because of labor. It's because of labor. Hmm, really? Well, as it turns out, I thought to myself, I'm seeing people getting Charlie horses from working so hard. Actually been disciplined for that. That's another topic. Not me. Another person got disciplined and I corrected that. Having said that, I can't imagine anybody working any harder than the people that I was watching around me work hard like myself. Can't think of it. So now there's something else in play. Well, yes, engineering, and I know for a fact that they make plastic fender molds uh, that will facilitate the production of two at a time, and we make molds that only build one at a time. So that's an engineering uh, difference, advantage that they have uh, overseas sometimes. But that's a little bit. That's nominal. That's not 32% of a, of a product. So I started digging in, and here it is. Cost of government in the form of taxes. We have one here that we have on our products. When we send it over to country X, and sell it there, our cost of government is built into the product, and then they add their cost of government, so two costs of government when we sell our product over there. Sounds unfair, doesn't it? Yes, it is. And then when they sell their product in their country, there's one cost of government on it. When it comes here to the United States, zero cost of government on it. In both instances, a 32% disadvantage here in the United States and in country X. Now what does that mean? That means that people buy their pocketbook and I was told, oh no, oh, that, that, that's not going to happen. People don't buy their, pro their pocketbook. They buy, uh, you know, what's, you know, name brand. They're all loyal to the United States products. Well, that's what we were told in the late 80s and of course we've seen what's occurred people bought their pocketbook meaning that they bought the cheaper products when you buy a cheaper product that happens to be made in country X when you buy that from them that creates jobs in country X and more affluence because the profit is garnered in country X over in Europe or any other country. This happened in China as well, by the way. Not quite the amount, but nonetheless it has happened the same because it was an emerging country, if you might recall, and they stayed with a sales tax, value-added tax. So now we have 
this huge tax imbalance that causes the United States to purchase foreign products that are cheaper and cause those jobs to be generated where the products are being manufactured. And that is a real problem. We've watched our citizens of our country buy cheaper products from foreign countries since 1982 some 35 years and our money has followed to those countries now I asked in the 19 early 1990s uh, the pile is only so big eventually a 60 trillion 60 billion dollar a month trade deficit is going to hurt us oh no the pile's great we got a lot of pile over here well um, yeah we saw the pile get increased with quantitative easing when the fed infused trillion dollars a year creating a bigger pile and we spent that money on cheaper products largely made in China and caused those jobs to increase over there and jobs to go away from here leave our country so the pile wasn't big enough to sustain our uh, greed and uh, desire for all these products made in foreign countries, so we just created more money, infused it into the economy. Um, we talked about trade deficit of six, 60, roughly 60 billion a month. That's nearly a trillion dollars a year leaving our country. That's a lot of money, folks. I'm going to tell you that I did a study starting in 1992 when we had a half a billion dollar trade or uh, national debt. That 500 million national debt, the Ford CEO's pension fund's bigger than that now. Imagine that. 500 billion. No, I'm sorry. It's a 500 billion. His, his is not quite a billion. I misspoke. I apologize. Sorry. He's only just a little under a billion. And we had a 500 billion uh, uh, national debt. 500. By golly, i got to get it right. 500 billion national debt, just a little, about half a trillion, right, that's correct, half a trillion, and he's just a little under a billion, so we're, you know, that, that was an incorrect statement, I apologize for that, uh, but uh, he's still right up there uh, in, in the realm of uh, bad, bad things that have occurred in our country, so uh, with a half a trillion dollars, 500 billion national debt. That's where we started with the study. And I added the 
monthly trade deficit in the study I did this in 2010 so uh, but it, it remains today intact by the way uh, so the trade deficit was added and compounded monthly by the 10-year Treasury percentage okay so if the, the Treasury percentage was 4% or 2% or 10% throughout time it got compounded but it didn't just compound the monthly it compounded the whole amount okay that's compound not simple interest so the trade deficit compounded added to the, the original trade deficit or the, uh, added to the national debt added to the national debt and compounded by the interest rate of 10 percent equals the national debt today. Trade deficit compounded for interest of the 10-year Treasury note equals the national debt today. Since 1982 through 2010 was the study and it's it, it remains. I just have to extend the numbers based on trade deficit and and uh, the percentage of uh, the Treasury note. But it equals the national debt. We were at 14. I think we're now at at uh, 19 trillion dollars. So the money that we spent overseas cost us in national debt. And there is a study out there that says any numbers that are equal and have some relevancy to them are actually reciprocal. So you can expect that those large numbers of the trade deficit starting at a half a trillion dollars, the starting point was a half a trillion and you compound the trade deficit again add that all together compound it by the treasury note 10 year treasury note that's the one in the middle and you get a number that's equal to the national debt that we've acquired since 1982 both numbers grew virtually the same speed and level had we not had the policies of our taxing structure where we stayed on payroll withholding and the rest of the world on a value-added tax our country would not be in the position that it's in today we'll take the NAFTA sliding scale one step further you see because GATT as you may recall locked us in for all time never to be revisited or sunsetted into a non-competitive position globally because they all changed to a sales tax and we stayed with payroll withholding tax there's two things that can happen one we put a surcharge on the products coming here that equal our highest minimum wage 
from these slave wage countries and then return that money to those countries. That stops the dumping of product in our United States. The other thing that can happen is totally eliminate payroll withholding tax and go to a sales tax. The government accounting office when I was in the National Pell Program told me some numbers and I did the numbers and a 12.5% national sales tax on everything in the uh, gross domestic product would pay for the government and retire a government in all cases including Social Security and Medicare and retire debt. Now, that's on everything. Now, you can't really charge it on a lot of the low-income people. So if you took it out on products that are typically purchased by low-income folk, about a 17% national sales tax would pay for everything and give some relief to the indigent people. That was confirmed by Congressman Jim Traficant, who was also saying the same thing on the floor of Congress in the 90s when I spoke with him, when he came to Lansing, Ingham County to, to a fundraiser event that our local party held and I asked him to come and speak because I'm from, my hometown is Youngstown, Ohio and he's from there, was from there, he's been murdered, so, well, arguably been murdered. Uh, uh, so, having said that, uh, he confirmed those numbers to me. The numbers regarding the taxation of the global G7, the other G7 countries, I had the distinct honor of being in the National Pell in the fall of 1995, and the other six countries in the G7, the United States has a late financial liaison to. All six of those came and presented to us. All six, after I presented what I've just presented to you, in a shorter version, because they sort of got it a little quicker probably, uh, in mm, ten minutes, it's still pretty long, uh, but a, a shorter version, they all left with their tail between their legs, having not done their job when I admonished them for allowing our country to be attacked. During the National Pell, when in Boston, and we interfaced with a lot of Ph.D. economists, several of the Ph.D. economists singularly and on their own work uh, 
having heard my argument, went home in the evening, did the math, and came back. As I beat my drum for a national sales tax, they said to me, virtually everyone almost word for word, keep beating your drum because if you're not successful, our country is going to be in dire straits. It's now 21 and a half years later, and I submit that our country is in dire straits because we did not change from a payroll withholding to a sales tax to be comparative to the rest of the world because our leadership that I talked to, remember, I was chair of the Democratic Party for the capital county of Michigan, where the capital of the state sits. And I was political coordinator for 11 counties. I interfaced with a lot of politicians nationwide. Each and every one that I presented this imbalance to, with the sole exception of one Republican, said that that's a regressive tax, sales tax, and we need to stay on a progressive tax. Well, we have progressively taxed our way into losing 90% of our manufacturing base because everybody else went in a comparative nature to a sales tax. And the argument of progressive or regressive goes away when you measure up to other countries who've changed and went to the regressive tax in an effort to take our wealth from us and our jobs. I am in this regard very angry that I was not able to convince people that this tax imbalance far outstripped any definition of regression or progression of a, ta of a tax system within our own country because we live in the global world and it needs to occur. It truly needs to occur that we go to a sales tax. It levels the field right away. Nobody can dump anything over here anymore. Eliminates the IRS $500 billion expenditure costs the country for them to run that. Everybody pays taxes those people that have been working for cash get brought into the system. Any drug dealers that are doing their drugs, and when they buy their goods and services from the legal entities, they have to pay tax. Everybody starts paying tax. Everybody gets pulled into the system. The transition is a little complicated but you wouldn't be paying the tax but that would still cost the, the, the 
company you worked for, they would just simply have to raise your, uh, keep your wages the same, only instead of paying the government, you would get the whole amount tax-free. And then you would pay sales tax at a higher level. So it really wouldn't hurt us as members all that much. Stops the exodus of work, exodus of money, brings people that are not paying tax into the system, and we're held harmless because the money that we now pay in taxes would just come into our pocketbook. So if you're making $15 an hour, $30 an hour, 30 instead of paying $9 in taxes and taking home 21 you would take home 30 but you'd have to pay a higher tax when you bought your goods and services. So that's what happened to our country. Started in 1982 under Ronald Reagan and if I have my way he will go down in history as the worst United States President of all time. Followed by Clinton who signed NAFTA and more importantly signed GATT that locked us into a non-competitive position. People talk about the four horsemen. You can start with Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and Bush. There's four of them. What's about to happen to our country, I really, really fear because of what's occurred. The pile got bigger when the Fed infused a trillion dollars a year for about seven years. That means they bought bonds with digital money and put them into the system. And that money found its way globally. The Fed still has $4.3 trillion of those bonds sitting in inventory on the shelves of its fine facility. On April 6th, they announced they intend to sell the $4.3 trillion worth of uh, bonds this year. So the infusion that caused this market rise is about to be uh, unwound is their term. When you hear them say that's their, that's their buzzword, code word, we're going to unwind. They're going to sell all those bonds that they bought. And of course the market won't go up like it did when they bought them. It's going to go down. We need to make a change. Either start immediately charging a surcharge at the border and giving the money back to those countries so they can't dump product here anymore. We can't keep the surcharge, unlike what our current president has to say about it. He doesn't know that GATT prevents us from making a trade or a tariff on it. A surcharge that you return to the country is legal to the other country 
it's legal, even under GAT. It's the only thing that's legal. The only other thing that's legal that can straighten out our country is going to a 17% sales tax and eliminating, in total, the payroll withholding tax. Again, this has been verified by Jim Trafficant, by all six liaisons to the other countries, witnessed by everyone in my National Pell program, and by three PhD economists that came to me and said, keep beating your drum. If you don't succeed, our country's going to be in dire straits. Having said that, uh, I think I've covered that as well as it can be covered, and I hope that you take heed to this very troublesome issue that's caused our country to be in the situation that it is now. I should talk about briefly Keynesian economic theory because too many people don't understand it. The stimulus that you witnessed the Fed doing would have worked prior to the signing of NAFTA and GATT and to prior to the 1982 Mexico City Summit. Had, if we didn't have the sales tax in the rest of the world and we were on payroll withholding tax and we were in a effectively closed economy in the United States, man by the name of Keynes was a prisoner in a Scotland prison in the early 1900s and he wrote what's called the Keynesian economic theory that means if government if you're in a downturn in your economy and government infuses money it'll bring your economy back People will then have money to buy things off the shelves. Those shelves get vacant, and they have to manufacture more product to put them on the shelves. There's three cycles of that purchasing product and manufacturing that's occurred in the country that uh, spirals up the, the economy. You know, the first batch to replenish second batch of products to uh, get everybody you know filled up in their stores and the last batch of product that that are uh, for the benefit of pleasure for example and then the manufacturing taxes on the payroll withholding system repays the government from the for the initial stimulus and everybody is whole in the, in the economy then spun its way out of a depression or re recession. Uh, that was important for our country to do that from time to time. In 1937, the Fair Labor Standards Act came into being that allowed for uh, uh, the unemployment 
unemployment uh, to be there. Uh, so that then leveled out a lot of the naders of the economic cycle. So we didn't go into those real bad depressions. And we haven't had a depression, you know, since that was put into place. Unemployment is a good thing. Un unemployment wages are a good thing. And unemployment is a good thing. Oh, jeez, that didn't sound that. That didn't sound right. Unemployment as a benefit is a good thing, uh, so that it levels out those naders in the economy. And we haven't had that that. Uh, uh, problem for some time uh, so of uh, the deep economic cycles so everybody's feeling pretty happy about themselves so then they create this uh, we're doing too good mentality in 1982 and get everybody else on a sales tax and we're on a payroll withholding sucking the money out of the country well then our country starts to go down because there's not a velocity of money. We don't have broadness, volume, moving fast through our economy. Because when this stimulus hit, that $7 trillion that the Fed infused, it gave people money to buy products off the shelves, essentially. And then manufacturing had to occur to replenish the shelf in the store. Of course, that manufacturing was done overseas, largely in China. And it stimulated their economy with an influx of money because no matter how much stimulus was being done, the jobs were in China. 90% of them left, 91%, according to CBS. 91% and some other people's numbers. Uh, so those jobs were in China and other places. And that's why China is experiencing extraordinary inflation right now. They're having a tough time over there. We would have had it here if we'd have just infused that money into our economy <laughs> like they did in Jimmy Carter's time when the Phillips curve got out of balance and he was told not to print money and he did he somehow got convinced to do that Phillips curve is another thing that you uh, for another show but the Keynesian economic theory created jobs in China and the government would have been repaid our government United States government had those jobs been here would have collected money to repay somehow repay the the government for having infused that money. Thus, Keynesian economic theory would have worked. But it's no longer internal to the United States because we now have the work being done in other countries and there's no payroll withholding being done to repay the federal government. Thus, our country has a huge debt, the government, that needs to be unwound. It's four point, I think it's $4.3 trillion, they said. It needs to be unwound. 
4.3 trillion dollars are going to sell in bonds in the next year two three however long they're going to come under a lot of heat if they try and do it in one year so it won't happen in one year their intention is to do it in a single year that's what they said and the fed minutes were released on april 6th so our country's in dire straits <laughs> i hate to tell you we tried not to have this happen uh there's some things that can be done to try and fix it. I've outlined those. There's really two. Uh, and it just needs to happen. This needs to happen. We were told it was going to happen on day one of this current administration. But they don't completely understand it. And nobody's is indicated by some of the financial experts. Too many people at the rudder of this ship and it's not going in the direction it needs to go in. What we need is strong labor representation, and that would resolve our problems. We aspire as a caucus working for a living to be that strong voice. The reason I'm here this evening is because we're all off doing training in some measure or another. And we'll all be back next week. I want to thank you for listening to this show this evening. And we hope that you've had a good hour as you now understand fully what happened to our country. Wish you all the best. Shout out to all our friends around the globe, all seven continents. Please remember to tell just one friend if you found value in this to listen to our show also follow us on blog talk radio to get reminded of the show and our email address is working for a living at working for until next week have a safe week good night